This is Scott, host of the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast and Black author. You could get all three of my books. My first book, Systematic Racism and Capitalism, Alliance of Oppression. My second book, Hypocrisy in America, The Veil of White Supremacy. And my third book, my first novel, Exodus 2035, all available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can download the Kindle app to your smartphone or tablet, and you can access those products. Thanks for listening. All right, so I decided to get someone on the show tonight who is an actual expert on critical race theory and much more. This way we can all understand what critical race theory is about and how we can develop a better judgment about the current push to ban it from schools in the red states. So joining me now is Dr. Amani Perry, professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. Professor Perry, I'll say Dr. Perry, I know they say PhDs come a dime a dozen, I don't buy that. So I'm gonna say your expertise matters. And I'm gonna ask you you very clearly, (laughs) what is critical race theory? Thank you. Thank you for having me. So um, the most straightforward way to explain critical race theory is to begin with the civil rights movement. Right. So the victories of the movement, which we all know, are found in federal legislation, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, but also in anti-discrimination law, essentially laws that declared Jim Crow policies unconstitutional. So after that moment, we begin to understand, uh, of course, that black people suffered many other forms of injury and had many systems of of disadvantagement um, uh, and inequality in their lives, right? And so legislatures and municipalities and organizations began to make specific efforts to target African-Americans with programs to address current and past discrimination. And they faced a major conservative backlash. And the way that backlash was was formed was saying, well, if you make programs to target the discrimination experienced by black Americans and you don't include me, white person, then you are discriminating against me. Right. And so they begin to attack programs like affirmative action and upward bound, et cetera. And the Supreme Court of the United States then really fails the civil rights movement by basically treating targeted programs to address racial inequality as the same form of discrimination as Jim Crow laws, right? That they both are subject to immediate scrutiny, uh, the strictest scrutiny. So, okay, so we get to this point, and then civil rights lawyers and scholars begin to talk about how we have to be able to address subordination injustice, not just color consciousness. It's not enough to be colorblind. We actually have to be able to address injustice and subordination if we're going to have legal racial equality. And that's the heart of critical race theory. All right. In a nutshell, critical race theory, it's breaking down systematic racism, white supremacy, what it is, what it does, what it means and how the system keeps changing how racism and oppression is systematic, right? It's not tied to one individual person. It's not tied to Donald Trump. It's not just him. It's a whole system of injustice in all areas of people activity, political, economic, social, entertainment. It's all there, okay? That's critical race theory. Now, lately, critical race theory has been in the news because several school districts all throughout the South, Arizona, Georgia, 
Texas. I think a white woman went viral down in Missouri at a, at a PTA conference screaming, you know, I'm not a racist because, just because I don't want my kids learning critical race theory. Now, I don't have children. I have not been in school in a while. I was unaware that this is something that they even taught. I was very unaware that this is something that they even taught in the public schools. I was not aware that public schools was teaching critical race theory. But parents all over southern states are going crazy, mostly white parents that we do not want our kids learning this. We do not learn want our kids learning about sy- systematic race, racism, white supremacy. We do not want our kids learning critical race theory because that's what it is. All right. Anytime you hear critical race theory, systematic racism, white supremacy, that's that's what they're teaching. OK, a bunch of civil rights lawyers and, and black scholars and people with more degrees than a, than a thermometer came together and put together this 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 manifesto and called it critical race theory. And this thing is not new. This thing has been around for quite a while. It's, it's been around for quite some time. I was unaware that they taught it in school, but apparently they have been teaching it in schools and parents have been going crazy. You will not teach my children about systematic racism, white supremacy and how it has destroyed black people. Mostly white parents don't want their white children to know how systematic racism has worked against black people for the last since 1619. What year is this? 2021 so mm, 400 years give or take all right so that's that is the breakdown on critical race theory here's one thing to remember history is always written by the winner we live in the united states of america u.s history was written by and disseminated not only by racist white people Um, It was approved and distributed by racist white women all throughout the United States. I talked about that on a previous show. You could pick up the book by Elizabeth Gillespie McRae, Mothers of Mass Resistance, White Women and the Politics of White Supremacy. How in the 1950s and 60s, these white women, they formed committees that would approve textbooks that would be uh, distributed in, in the counties. And if they didn't approve it, it was not distributed. And the only textbooks they would approve was the textbooks that painted the picture of white people in a positive light who talked about how great George Washington was and how great the KKK was and how Don Trotton and how disgusting and how disparaging these these niggas were. The history books that have been disseminated throughout the United States were overlooked and approved by committees of racist white women. And they damn sure don't want... <laughs> Don't want they lily white kids to learn about critical race theory, how how they've been working systematically for the last 400 years to destroy all these niggers. We are coming upon Memorial Day. Memorial Day is here. I shouldn't say we are coming upon Memorial Day. Memorial Day is here. Happy Memorial Day to everybody. Did you know that Memorial Day was started by former slaves down in Charleston, South Carolina during the Civil War? A lot of 257 Union soldiers were captured, right? They were captured by the Confederate soldiers and they were held prisoner. A lot of them died. Uh, the, the story goes a lot of them, they may have, may have died from sickness, from disease. Some people say the Confederate soldiers just went ahead and shot them and killed them, right? Because they were holding these Union soldiers prisoners and they buried them in a shallow grave down at a racetrack 
in Charleston, South Carolina, that they made into a makeshift prison. About a month after the Civil War ended, former slaves went to that site and gave all 257 Union troops a proper burial. And after they gave them a proper burial, about 10,000 people showed up a few weeks later and they had a parade. This is recognized as the first Memorial Day. They were paying respects to the Union soldiers that fought and died for their freedom. This is in 1865 down in Charleston, South Carolina. You can look this up. This actually didn't get discovered until the early 1990s by a professor at Harvard University who was digging through the archives because he was actually researching a book on about the Civil War. And he found documented proof that this was actually the first remembrance of Memorial Day. Right. Up until this point, people had thought that the D.A.R., the Daughters of the Confederacy, had started Memorial Day because they would lay wreaths and pay tributes to the dead Confederate soldiers. But his research proves that this actually dated back even further than what the, <laughs> the than what the Daughters of the Confederacy were doing. All right. So don't let nobody tell you this is a myth. This is not a myth. This is a fact. All right. They, they love to talk about the Ivy League. They love to talk about how great these institutions are. Well, this was a professor at Harvard University, the premier university in the United States of America. He uncovered this. He did the research. He dug this out. And he, to my knowledge, to this day, he is still doing lectures on how free black slaves started Memorial Day. So that's a, if you don't know, now you know. Happy Memorial Day, everybody. You know, go ahead, get you a burger, get you a rib, get you some chicken. It's just a, you know, black. The, the, the <laughs> this, this is truly a black man's holiday. Let's go down to Tulsa, Oklahoma. May 31st also marks the 100 year anniversary of the Tulsa race riots, the destruction of Black Wall Street. The race massacre, the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, was the deadliest attack on a black community in American history. And I would even maybe go as far as saying any community in American history. The Greenwood District, circa 1921, um, was a 35 to 40 block area that was teeming with people and businesses. We, you know, based on census records, there were you know, over 10,000, nearly 11,000 black residents of the Greenwood District. There were nearly 200 uh, black-owned businesses. And the majority of the land in Greenwood was owned by black people, which was a stark contrast to the daily realities of most other black people in this country. And so Greenwood, Black Wall Street, was a symbol of black excellence. And it remains a symbol of black excellence. And so the mob that attacked the Greenwood District numbered in the hundreds and perhaps even in the thousands. And so those individuals, those invaders, as survivors called them, came into the community in the hundreds, some armed with weapons, 
many came also with cameras and took photographs of the destruction and the loss of life. And so when I talk about the race massacre, I, I try to be very clear to people that what occurred in Greenwood or what, 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 what happened on May 31st and June 1st, the destruction of this exemplary black community, not just an affluent black community, but this exemplary black community, the destruction of that community was not exceptional. This occurred. Mobs attacked black communities and had attacked black communities for decades before the race massacre. Black people were driven from communities, you know, across this country for decades before the race massacre. And so what occurred in, in, in Tulsa, what occurred and what happened to that community is not exceptional. But what is unprecedented about what occurred is its scope, right? A 35-block area, one of the wealthiest black communities in this country, in a matter of 18 hours, completely destroyed. And not only is it, was it completely destroyed, whites who participated in that destruction documented it with photographs. Whites who took photographs of the violence were careful the massacre tulsa oklahoma not the only one of its kind it was the most documented by the white people themselves that went down there to destroy it a very affluent all-black area destroyed within 18 hours you talking about over 200 black owned businesses destroyed black people's homes burned down chased out of town Thousands and thousands of black people. Now, let's put this in context. One business can support a family of four. So you're talking about 200 black owned businesses destroyed. That's 800 black people without a means to support themselves, without livelihood. You're talking about thousands of black people who were forced to flee their homes, who were forced to abandon their land. You're talking about an untold number of black people who were murdered. And this is not unique. Tulsa is not unique. As you heard in the clip. That in the clip was University of Oklahoma Regents Professor Carlos Hill, by the way. So this was a large, coordinated, systemic attack to destroy black towns, affluent black towns at that. Right. This up, not ignorance. Let's file this in the category that white people are not ignorant when it comes to racism, white supremacy. They will coordinate an attack and destroy an all black town within 18 hours. They will make sure that critical race theory, they will coordinate and make sure that critical race theory is not being taught in the schools. <laughs> not ignorance, coordination, well oiled, oiled, oiled machine. This thing is systematic. Now, you still have survivors of the race massacre. You still have three known survivors who were down on Capitol Hill this week, and this is what they had to say. 60 miles away, they had had the Tulsa riots years before I was born. But they never talked about it. Never? Slaughter. It was a slaughter. They never talked about it. Never talked about it when I was in Oklahoma. 
100 years ago, a white mob descended on a prosperous black business district in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That mob killed hundreds in one of the worst episodes of racial violence in U.S. history. Well, today on Capitol Hill, lawmakers heard from living survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. NPR's Juana Summers reports. When the mobs came to Greenwood, Viola Fletcher was just seven years old. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. Fletcher was one of three survivors of that violence to testify before a House panel. Historians say that the massacre left as many as 300 black people dead and more than 10,000 homeless. Once known as Black Wall Street, Greenwood was destroyed. Lessie Benningfield Randall described what it was like to live in Greenwood as a child. Testifying by video conference, she said it was a place where she had no fear. Then everything changed. It was like a war. White men with guns came and destroyed my community. We couldn't understand why. Now, as Tulsa prepares to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the massacre, survivors like Fletcher want reparations. I am 107 year old and have never been seen justice. I pray that one day I will. I have been blessed with a long life and have seen the best and the worst of this country. I think about the terror inflicted upon black people in this country every day. Fletcher's younger brother, Hughes Van Ellis, testified too. The World War II veteran wore a U.S. Army ball cap. And he described the multiple unsuccessful attempts by survivors and their relatives to seek justice through the courts. We were shown that in the United States, not all men were equal under law. We were shown that when black boys is called out for justice, no one cared. Ellis, who's 100 called for the last survivors of the Tulsa race massacre to be acknowledged while they're still living. Please do not let me leave this earth without justice like all the others. Massacre survivors, thank you so much. Those black people have been through hell and they deserve justice. Will they get it? from the United States government, I doubt it. Here's what's probably going to happen. The United States government is probably waiting for those last three three survivors to go ahead and pass. And then after they have passed on, they'll go ahead and issue an apology and talk about how wrong it was and how it should never happen. Because then they don't have to give them no money. Then they don't have to give them anything tangible, right? Because if, the, if they give them the reparations they deserve, if they give them something tangible, if they give them the, the financial compensation that they deserve, then they could pass that on to, to their kids, their grandkids, probably their great, great, great grandkids. I mean, these people are 100 and 107 years old. So they don't want a black family to have anything tangible and they deserve it. All right. President Biden, he's he's, he's signing bills to protect transgenders. I'm glad they they I'm glad they got it. They deserve it. He's signing bills to protect uh, Asians and Pacific Islanders against hate. I'm glad they got it. Cool. No problem with it. 
Now it's time, black people, we got to get what we deserve. All right. They have no problem sitting up after election day and, you know, shaking their hands and doing high fives and saying, hey, black people, you really showed up for me. Now it's time for you to show up for us. We need something tangible. We don't need the regular lip service. You need to people who are in power need to go ahead and do something. And let's bring things full circle. We talked about critical race theory earlier. Do you know that the governor of Oklahoma banned the teaching of critical race theory in the Oklahoma in Oklahoma public schools? This is ground zero for Black Wall Street. Black ground zero for the race massacre that happened a hundred years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they don't want kids even learning critical race theory they don't want them being taught anything about how systematic white supremacy works operates or was used to destroy black people i'm curious in oklahoma if they even teach what happened uh in the tulsa massacre and and the massacre that was black wall street i'm wondering if do they even teach that what do they teach how is it being taught is it accurate man um and if you happen to have a black community that survived all that, um, su- survived Jim Crow, survived, you know, mobs of angry whites coming to destroy your towns and take pictures of it. Um, if you survived all that, then if you live long enough, uh, maybe the federal government would just uh, come and run a highway through your neighborhood. In public spaces that shape modern New York City were built at the expense of black and Latino New Yorkers. When Robert Moses, an unabashed racist, began building his public projects in the 1920s, he bulldozed black and Hispanic homes to make way for parks. He built highways right through the middle of minority neighborhoods. And when he built the highways leading from the city to the breezy beaches of Long Island, he ordered engineers to make sure those bridges were low enough so that city buses, which would likely carry poor people, would not be able to pass through. Samson Livingston is out all the time digging up stories of Indianapolis buildings and byways. This tour is really about other monuments, like the site of a historic African-American community center active in the 1920s when the Ku Klux Klan essentially ran local government. Center Avenue YMCA was right here. It was once the largest black YMCA in the country. Before this neighborhood around Indiana Avenue was gutted by an interstate and many of its buildings destroyed, Livingston says it was a hub of black entertainment and commerce. But that was in the early 1960s before the bulldozers uprooted the dogwoods and the oaks, gobbled up wide paved streets, and turned my playmates' homes into rubble. I vividly remember the change in terms that a little boy can understand. Jimmy Don Arnold, who had the largest and best comic book collection, tearfully told me one day he couldn't hang with the fellows anymore because the mysterious they were tearing down his house. William B.G. White's huge front yard, where we played pickup football games, became a mound of red dirt for an embankment to support an off-ramp to I-77. Was there any successful resistance? Was there any resistance at all? Oh, absolutely. There was certainly successful resistance. We can see good examples in Greenwich Village in, in New York. There were examples from Washington, D.C., which is where the, the phrase no white man's roads through black men's homes came from. That was the rallying cry for folks in D.C. Um, who resisted it. And there was also a successful effort in New Orleans. The history of the U.S. highway system, especially when it comes to major metropolitan areas, is actually a very racist one. 
um, you will find that the federal and local government conspired to run just about every major highway there is specifically through black neighborhoods. And it was not a secret. <laughs> OK, they wanted to do. They said, look, we just going to run through these highways where the niggers lives, we tear down their homes, we'll displace them. We don't want them here anyway. You, you know, we need a road. This happened in L.A., just Baltimore, New York, Miami, Chicago, Cleveland, all over the United States. They were running highways specifically through black neighborhoods to purposely displace black people. Again, this is not an accident. I don't believe in the 400 year coincidence. This is a coordinated effort, right? <laughs> Systemic racism, white supremacy, critical race theory, whatever you want to call it. The enemy is always busy. He never takes a day off. The system has never been destroyed. It just changes form. They will spend the last 400 years destroying you and then act a damn fool if you if you try to teach their kids <laughs> what they did. They'll, they'll block that from happening, too. All right. This has been the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time.